Carter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. All right, welcome to The Interpreter Show. Tonight, uh, it is... The show is being hosted by myself, Neil Rapley. I'm joined here in studio, as usual, by Jasmine Rapley and Stephen Smoot. And I believe we've got Hale Swift joining us by phone. Is that you on the line, Hales? Is it me? <coughs> Sorry. Is it me? Is it really me? <laughs> oh, I, I think it's you. I do. Okay, very good. All right. Well, uh, why don't we... To get things started uh, this evening, uh, yesterday there was the Interpreters uh, Conference Temple on Mount Zion, and uh, I'm sure you were there in spirit, Hales, but physically, Stephen, Jasmine, and I were all there, uh, and uh, there were a lot be. of... <laughs> what, what was that, Hales? I said, sounds like a good place to be. Yes, yes. I, like I said... Well, until Neil showed up. Yeah, you know, I ruined everything, of course. Um, <laughs> just my, my very presence. Uh, but no, it was, uh, it was... This has been a conference that Interpreter has been doing for a number of years now. Actually, since their launch, um, for the last 10 years, Interpreter has... Every other year, they've been doing this Temple on Mount Zion's uh, conference, and... There was a really great lineup uh, that included our very own Stephen Smoot as a speaker, and uh, Jasmine was also a chairperson for one of the sessions. Uh, I was completely uninvolved and got to just enjoy the presentations. Um, but why don't we go ahead and start off by uh, by recapping that, talking about some of the interesting presentations, so we won't talk about Stephen's at all. <laughs> uh, just, just kidding. Stephen's was excellent. Um, uh, well, um, the keynote speaker, I guess, was the Friday night, or was that technically the keynote? There were kind of two keynotes. I think there were two or three, counted, right? I think they counted both uh, C. Wilford Griggs and Margaret Barker, Margaret Barker as yeah. keynotes. So C. Wilford Griggs spoke on the Friday evening session, and he spoke on um, just the temple and um, early Christianity and what we can and cannot deduce from early Christian worship practices and if Latter-day Saints can find meaning in that in their temple worship. Um, Dr. Griggs is a retired faculty member of BYU and I believe um, I know he was involved in the like Egyptian excavation project BYU has. Yeah. Is he an Egyptologist? What is his specialty? So, um, if you want to count Egyptologists that do Coptic Christianity, <laughs> Coptic Egypt, then yes, he is. Because uh, the site that the BYU excavates in the Fayum um, is predominantly a Greco-Roman and Coptic site. So, uh, he has expertise, uh, Griggs has, exper has expertise in um, Egyptian Christianity, Coptic Christianity, and Hellenistic Egypt, uh, and onward. Yeah, and... But I would count that as an Egyptologist, right? Sure. Egyptology well, I, is a broad I know some. I know some stuffy shirts wouldn't want to do that, but I do. If Cleopatra is <laughs> part of ancient Egypt, Egypt in Egypt, <laughs> it counts as Egyptology, yeah. So, yeah, I actually had a uh, one of my professors uh, who taught me Latin... 
was good friends of his, and I'm I'm blanking on what his name was now, but uh, you know, Griggs is a bit of a classicist as well. So, uh, which is why a lot of what he talked about was like Temple and early Christianity and New Testament and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that he talked about a lot was I'm kind of pushing back against the notion that Christians were uninterested in the temple. I mean, others have argued that um, once the temple was destroyed, once Jesus came, all of a sudden um, the temple is irrelevant to Christianity and now you inhabit the temple in yourself, in your soul, in your heart. Like, that's the new temple. Your The body of the Christian is the new temple, no longer a structure with specific liturgies but he kind of pushed back against that notion primarily from what i could tell by appealing to this idea that christianity is some sort of monolith that we can't really say oh christians in general in rome and in turkey and in israel and in egypt and all these places where the christians were gathered all kind of believe the same things that there probably were a variety and so while some christians probably did see the temple as something that was no longer part of that formalized worship there may have very well have been other groups of christians that very much saw temple worship as an important part of their belief system and um necessary parts of salvation and so i thought that was pretty interesting now what we can deduce from early christianity about what those rituals looked like how exactly they operated how mainstream they were versus how fringe i mean that's still all very much up for debate but I thought it was an interesting discussion for the most part. He had some very lovely thoughts. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting that stood out, it was a little bit tangential to his main uh, message, but um, and I, I'm, I think we all kind of perked up when he started talking about the secret gospel of Mark. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, for, for those listening who may not be familiar, the secret gospel of Mark is uh, in reference to a document that was found in, I don't know, 1950s yeah, or something 50s. like that. Uh, by a man named Morton Smith, and uh, it was kind of sensational at the time because uh, it claimed to be written by uh, Clement of Alexandria, I think. Yeah. Um, and who, who Clement of Alexandria was an early Christian father from like uh, 150 BC or AD, not BC. Yeah. Um, but the but the document itself was written on like medieval paper and in a later script or something like that, and. Um, there was considerable, considerable debate. There still is considerable debate over the authenticity of this gospel. Um, it's been of interest to Latter-day Saints uh, like Griggs for reasons that are pretty obvious when, when you know the contents of it. It's got some very... It, it basically outright says that there was a secret gospel that would be only read to like higher-level initiates of the Christian faith. And that there was kind of a, a, a mystery, if you will, uh, a mystery initiation ritual that would initiate you in and then you'd get to he- have this secret gospel of Mark read to you that was longer and had additional details and things like that. And that stirred quite the pot when it was first discovered and Morton Smith was the one who discovered it and was a huge, huge advocate of its authenticity, uh, but... It's also many, many scholars have regarded it as a complete forgery and think that Morton Smith is the one who forged, who forged it. it. Yeah, um, uh, Ariel Sabar is a journalist who just recently wrote a book that's very interesting. Uh, I just finished reading it not too long ago titled 
Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife. And in this book, uh, Sabar talks about another forgery. This one is absolutely a forgery. Um, the, quote, uh, gospel of Jesus' wife. Um, but in it, he, he also meant, he gives kind of a review of the latest state of the scholarship on the secret Mark. And it was controversial both because it claimed to be another version of the Gospel of Mark being preserved in early Christian quotation, but also because uh, it had some sort of overtones to it that were seen as being challenging to conventional or predominant Christian uh, thinking. So uh, Morton Smith himself was, was gay and was very... Uh, cr- critical of conventional Jew or Christian uh, morality on the question of homosexuality, and the Gospel of Mark, the Secret Mark, some read as like, oh well, this is like has some thinly veiled homoerotic overtures to it, right? And mm-hmm. so this is Morton Smith's attempt at like you know sticking it to the Christian orthodoxy. So that became another factor besides the fact that oh, it's a secret gospel that is you know being used to teach higher levels of knowledge. There was also that other angle that maybe this is Morton Smith, uh, you know, trying to stick it to. Conventional Conventional Christian morality. Uh, I will mention uh, Yale University Press will have coming out next year The Secret Gospel of Mark, a controversial scholar, a scandalous gospel of Jesus, and the fierce debate over its authenticity. Ah. Uh, So that's forthcoming. It's going to be sort of the latest word on on the state of the the debate of Secret Mark. But um, yeah, so that's a little bit of context to Secret Mark and what the sort of the debate is. Yeah, and, and you know, I think... It, it's obviously it's very um, controversial, right? But uh, what I thought was most interesting was the personal. Uh, Griggs shared some personal experiences he actually had with Morton Smith. He had met him, and uh, Griggs had actually uh, used the Secret Gospel of Mark in some things he'd published, and Mar- Morton Smith had read them, and so he he met him, and they they had developed a bit of a friendship. It seemed like, and. And uh, whatever the authenticity of the secret gospel of Mark may be, Griggs just was very, based on his, his personal interactions with Morton Smith, he was, he was very insistent that Morton Smith himself could not possibly have been behind any kind of forgery uh, or what have you. Why was that? Why did you think that? He just seemed to indicate that it just wasn't in his character or his ability to do that. He didn't really expound a whole lot, but he was convinced that through his personal interactions with him, I guess they went out to lunch a few times and talked over a bunch of things. He just found him to be like a really genuine person that he like couldn't have faked it, especially kept the roost for so long. <laughs> but one interesting thing when it comes to like secret gospel of Mark or what early Christians may have um, practice as far as secret rituals or these mysteries. We know that mystery religions were somewhat prevalent in the Greco-Roman era, um, but it's hard to reconstruct what those rituals would have been. Even for the mystery religions that we know existed, that we have attestations of, because even their texts that we have surviving, like the cult of Mithras or this, the mysteries of Demeter or Isis, we know these like kind of more secretive, ritualistic cults existed, but we still can't really reconstruct what their liturgies looked like very specifically because they kept them very sacred. And even when they wrote these things down, they weren't be- being very explicit about who did what, what happened next. It's very 
kind of esoteric. It's very alluding to things without outright saying them. And Latter Day Saints kind of do yeah, the same yeah, thing. I was going to say it's, it's kind of like the way guarded. we talk about yeah. temples. Uh, and a lot so, of the time. like, if so, trying to reconstruct, like, okay, we have some allusions to maybe some mysterious teachings that Christians may have practiced, or we have the a, a body of. 40-day literature or a bunch of texts that have come out talking about what Jesus did those 40 days that he ministered to people. And some Latter-day Saints have suggested, well, maybe he introduced some temple-like teachings there where, you know, they were, they kept those things very sacred. And that's why we don't know a lot about them. And uh, whether or not they that may be true, it's just so hard to reconstruct what may or may not have happened if it's something that they held sacred. I mean, today, if, if there were like a nuclear bomb and that destroyed like all the temples or whatever, and then archaeologists hundreds of years later uncovered them. The truth is we do have texts that we write down today in the temple that we don't share outside of the temple. But um, so I don't know, maybe an archaeologist would find like laminated texts that kind of (laughs) still. Well, or if you just found Orson Pratt's The Seer. Right. uh, Right. But for the most part, you're not going to find a lot, even if you go through the temple, that would tell you exactly what happened there because we are pretty guarded about what we write down in writing, what we say in person, what gets recorded on video, which, because we believe those things are really sacred. And so an archaeologist coming hundreds of years later would have a hard time reconstructing what the Latter-day Saint endowment looked like if he didn't have uh, you know, access to a lot of other documents. So I think you know it's just always good to be cautious about what we believe Christians did or didn't do. And I think there's a lot of reason for Latter-day Saints to have, you know, hope and optimism that what we believe as Latter-day Saints stems from ancient practices um, that go back all the way to the Israelite temple. I mean, a lot of those themes still persist. But, you know, we also have to be careful about making too big of assumptions about, you know, the Latter-day Saint endowment being in situ in early Christianity or something. Or at least, as we as it's commonly envisioned, when we talk about the modern temple being a restoration of the ancient temple, we are often, many just sort of unconsciously assume, assume that the modern temple is like a 21st century facsimile of the temple in the 1st century or uh, the temple in the 6th century BC, right? Right, um, right. whereas, you know, the endowment that was introduced in 18... 18- 43, or sorry, 1842, was very much also influenced by Joseph Smith's understanding of religion, of temple, and so that is infused in what we have today, whereas, but we do believe that ancient ideas about covenants, ancient Mm -hmm. ideas about um, ordinances, and of certain symbolic gestures, certain symbolic rites that we do, and clothing that we endow ourselves. Yeah, Yeah. all of that stuff, we believe, does have origins in antiquity. Uh, right, and I think Perhaps the best way to put it is to say that whatever discoveries end up being made that re- that shine additional light on uh, ancient temple traditions, we expect that they will not be in English and or Spanish or you know any of the other languages that are, are convenient to today's temples. And I think we can also say that some components of the symbolism may also be clothed in different uh, symbolic language, but that the fundamental covenants will still be there and will be able to trace a high degree of continuity between what was done in former times and what is done today. 
Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say the purposes of, of the temple mm-hmm. are pretty constant through time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. the way the Lord accomplishes those purposes has, of course, um, been developed uh, and adopted and adapted to various circumstances, even within our own dispensation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As Jasmine mentioned, the, the endowment that was revealed in Nauvoo isn't quite... The, the ceremony and the rituals uh, attached to it aren't exactly what we do. And we've even just in the last few years witnessed some changes to the ritual uh, process and things like that. But the purpose has always been the same. And the covenants uh, that bind us together as both a community and uh, to, to, to the community and to God uh, have, have always had that same core purpose of of creating a covenant community and that really is the whole purpose of the temple on mount zion conference is we've got a collection of latter-day saint scholars who all are very passionate about the latter-day saint temple endowment but also passionate about the ancient world and who believe that what we see in temple worship has its origins in antiquity and that we can explore different ways in which that might be the case in ancient scripture or in ancient uh, cultural practices. And, you know, some sometimes our arguments are more persuasive than others, but I think it's really important to have these venues where we could get to explore that and kind of vet ideas about what's possible here and what really works and what's salient. Um, so with that, let's maybe go into some of our favorite presentations from yesterday's conference there was a morning session an afternoon session and kind of a late afternoon session and um i'm curious to have steven maybe give a recap of his presentation temple themes in the book of abraham well i'd be happy to because that was my personal favorite presentation (laughs) (laughs) but i'm a little bit biased just a little bit so this is a paper that uh i worked on this summer um i've taught some Pearl Great Price classes now at BYU as adjunct faculty in religious education. So I've been spending a lot of time in the Pearl Great Price. Uh, earlier this year, I did a study edition of the Pearl Great Price, so it's been on my mind. And when I was invited to to present to, at this conference, I thought, well, let's do stuff on temples in the Book of Abraham or temple themes in the Book of Abraham. So what I have found and what I argue in this paper is that uh, a lot of the narrative and thematic elements in the book of Abraham can be read in the context of the temple. So modern Latter-day Saint readers can look at elements in the book of Abraham from the lens of the temple and see a, uh, a meaningful connection there. But in addition to that, I wanted to explore um, if we take for granted, which I do, that the book of Abraham is an ancient book, then when it uses words like priesthood or when it describes Abraham building an altar and receiving uh-huh. a theophany of God in a sacred ritual setting. What does that look like in an ancient context, in an ancient setting? And so that was sort of the, the two-part exploration I did. So on the one hand, you see elements in the Book of Abraham that tie in with our temple endowment experience very nicely. Elements of sacrifice, elements of obedience, elements of making covenants with God elements of God revealing himself. He does it like three times in the book of Abraham to Abraham where where the Lord appears to him. The element of the Lord revealing his true secret name to Abraham for the first time of Jehovah. And Abraham learns this new name for God in the context of making a covenant with God. 
there's uh, I discuss in my paper how there's lots of hand imagery happening. So there's lots of like extending the hand and raising the hand and you know grasping by the hand and putting the hand upon something, right? So there's lots of like fluid. I call well, we call them ritual gestures, right? Myself and others. So there's lots of ritual gestures in the text. And again, in the context of Abraham having a theophany, Abraham making a covenant, right? So what I say is that modern Latter Day Saints can take their temple endowment experience and they can read the text through this lens and they can see these interesting connections. Um, I think there's a one-to-one connection there. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the book of Abraham was published three, two months, two or three months before Joseph Smith uh, gives the first endowments in the red brick store in Nauvoo. So book of Abraham gets published in March of 1842 and in May of 1842 is when we have the endowment, right? Um, and then I discussed in an ancient context, what, what does this thing mean? So what, to give one example, priesthood, right? Priesthood is a big thing in the book of Abraham. Abraham talks about saying how he wanted to become a high priest, how he wanted the rights and the blessings of the priesthood of his, of his fathers, how Pharaoh, his competitor and his, his uh, sort of uh, his foil, right, his, 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 uh, his nemesis sort of, Pharaoh wanted to feign claim to the right of priesthood. That's explicit in the text. So I asked the question, what does priesthood look like in the book of Abraham and in the ancient world, right? So there's – and basically the, the short version is it connects with the temple. Latter-day Saints today, when they hear priesthood, they think uh, as defined by church manuals and in Sunday school, oh, priesthood is the authority to act for God. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but that's a very modern – restoration kind of perspective on priesthood in the ancient world priesthood like like by very definition is connected with a temple it's the it's the hood of priests in the temple right the Mm -hmm. it's like the neighborhood right or the sisterhood the priesthood the group of priests connected to a temple so so i i explore that in my paper um i i explore what's going on with abraham one when uh pharaoh tries to claim right to priesthood through his fathers and what that looks like so i discuss that and the fact that pharaoh was cursed so he couldn't have priesthood why was he cursed well i also explore that um i explore the fact that in abraham one when abraham is going to be sacrificed he's not just going to be sacrificed in any old place he specifically is going to be sacrificed on an altar Again, altar that evokes ritual setting, temple setting. He is going to be sacrificed at a place called Potiphar's Hill. It says, you know, it was a, it was near this place called Potiphar's Hill in the in the plain of Olishem. What a weird thing to mention! <laughs> oh yeah, and I was by this hill called Potiphar's Hill, right? Well, uh, again, this idea of like the sacred cosmic mountain being the occult site, like a ritual site, that's a very well attested thing, and I explore that in the paper. Um, so so I, I read Abraham 1 as a ritual contest is what I kind of call it, right? It's Abraham and his god Jehovah versus Pharaoh and his false gods, and they get these names, right, in this ritual setting, and it's competition for divine supremacy over the ritual space, over sacred space, right? So who's the real god here? And then chapter 2 they is, alike. Yeah, 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 I was going to say, kind of like the Elijah versus the priest yeah. of Baal and that kind of thing. Right, exactly. So a similar situation there. Abraham 2 is Abraham 
building altars in the land of Canaan. He builds like three of them in, in and around the land of Canaan. And each time he does, he offers a sacrifice and says a prayer. And at one time, God shows up and makes a covenant with Abraham. And another time, God like ratifies his covenant, right? Uh, and a third time, Abraham prays to the Lord and, and he has a theophany. Again, explicit connections. And then the last thing I talked about, and then I'll, I'll be done, I promise. Sorry. Uh, the, the last thing I, I mention I talk about is facsimile 2 because there are several figures in facsimile 2 that Joseph Smith says pertains to the temple. And so I explore what those are, what those elements are. And I lay out, I propose a methodology for reading facsimile 2 from the context of the temple, from our Latter-day Saint temple experience. But also I make the argument that Joseph Smith's uh, explanations to some of the figures in facsimile 2 as pertaining to the temple have a demonstrable clear Egyptian underlying precedent for them. Like it's not crazy. In other words, I argue that Joseph Smith saw temple connections with some of these figures in facsimile 2. I make, I make the argument for that or I, I sort of uh, clarify some of my thinking on that. Um, yeah, so the, in a nutshell, that's kind of what it is. The The recorded version that's online now um, is a pared-down version of my larger paper. I had to cut stuff out, so be sure to check out the published version when it gets published, hopefully in the near future. Um, but for now, you can see sort of the uh, the uh, the uh, summarized version, I guess, the abridged version of it to give you a, a taste for what some of my research and thinking on this says. The small plates version? The small plates version, yes, that's right, Hales, exactly. <laughs> So, um, where is that going to be appearing? Uh, uh, I presume it will be with the proceedings of the conference, which they do okay. um, after the conference is over. So if you go to the Interpreter Foundation YouTube channel, anyone who's listening can um, watch the the live stream. Right now, I think they're just all in chunks, like Friday evening, Saturday morning sort of stuff. But eventually, I would assume they're going to break those down into individual presentations so that you can just watch Steven's YouTube video yeah. on his presentation. And eventually, eventually, those proceedings will be published in a volume with the fuller papers. Um, but one thing I... Uh, thought was interesting is your treatment of the facsimiles because a lot of people find the facsimiles fascinating because there are the pictures that are in the scriptures but also they're they're points of contention for some people because um, critics of the church have pointed out well well, Egyptologists have read the facsimiles and they're nothing to what Joseph Smith's explanations are therefore the book of Abraham is false Um, and one thing that you kind of bring up is that well, in some readings of the Egyptian, it might be rendered this way. But if you render the Egyptian, if you translate it this way, it actually kind of coincides or kind of finds a, a similar parallel with what Joseph Smith might be talking about here. Um, but it's interesting that the facsimile as we see it isn't necessarily... Like, the way that Joseph Smith interpreted those facsimiles might not be the same way that a second century BC random secular Egyptian may have read them Um, but you kind of seem to suggest that Joseph Smith's kind of appropriating, syncretizing reinterpreting this Egyptian for a temple context and so my question is um, do you see it more as Joseph Smith kind of appropriating this Egyptian context for a Latter day Saint temple context or do you see it more as the author of the book of Abraham syncretizing this contemporary material for their temple-like purposes, right. or is it both, either, or, uh, what do you think? Yeah, right, yeah. Um, 
So my thinking on the facsimiles right now, I think that we have to, in some way, separate the facsimiles from the text of the Book of Abraham. So I see the text of the Book of Abraham as a inspired, revealed translation through Joseph Smith of Abraham's writings. And I see Joseph Smith as uh, being inspired to syncretize the iconography of the papyri that he has, uh, you know, that he purchases. He takes these images from the papyri and he syncretizes them with his revealed text in order to sort of illustrate his text and to draw out a lot of the themes and elements he wants as he adapts it, we might say likens it, to a Latter-day Saint uh, religious uh, sensitivity and context, right? So I see Joseph Smith acting as a a Syriac syncretist, you might say, if I want to coin a neologism there. And my contention is um, if you scratch below the surface – you, you see the logic and you see the inspiration in how he is syncretizing these elements and these figures, right? So in other words, yes, it's true that uh, from a bare-bones Egyptological perspective, uh, Joseph Smith's interpretations do not accord with how modern Egyptologists interpret these figures. However, I don't think that's much of a problem because I don't think Joseph Smith is acting like a modern Egyptologist, right? I think he's acting as a prophet and a seer. And as a prophet and a, sp- and a seer, uh, he is inspired to, again, syncretize these things in new ways to fit the revealed text he's giving us, right, that he's translating for us. So that's the first element of my methodology. And then my second element of, of my methodology is to say, again, go below the surface. Go deeper than just the fact that, okay, the Egyptologists say this figure is Osiris and Joseph Smith says it's Abraham or whatever, right? Take your pick, right? Try to dig down a little more. How did the ancient Egyptians conceptualize these things and, like, do we see some overlapping there? And the answer is like demonstrably yes. And I give examples in my paper and others have given examples. So it's a, it's a new way to kind of think about the facsimiles and maybe it challenges some of our assumptions about the facsimiles. But I think Joseph's explanations to the facsimiles, I think it's coming from basically Joseph Smith. I think he's inspired to give us some of this. Um, I think that's, in my opinion, that's disconnected from the text of the Book of Abraham or its ancient history, its ancient reception and composition. Um, I think Joseph, as the editor, as the translator, as the seer, is the one who's inspired to bring all this material together in a new syncretistic way. That's pretty cool. And if I remember, you also gave this really cool trivia fact that Joseph Smith originally intended to display the facsimiles in the papyri in the Nauvoo Temple. That was really awesome. We, we do have one source. Uh, it is anonymous, however, but it's contemporary, and it's from somebody who says, hey, I've, I've went and visited Joe Smith and the Mormons in Nauvoo. This is in 1840, so this is even before, you know, this is when it's just kind of a twinkle in their eyes, the Nauvoo Temple. But it's in late 1840, and this guy visits, and he goes and he writes to this newspaper and he says yeah i visited joe smith and he showed me his mummies and he showed me his papyri and he said he had translated them and uh, i said oh these might make splendid uh, displays in your temple you want to build and he says yes indeed and like he, he says that joseph smith yeah joseph smith apparently intended to display both the artifacts and the translated book of abraham text in the kirtland or sorry in the navu temple that'd be so cool <laughs> We have the we have the papyri. Let's put them up. Come on, President Nelson. Let's put them up in Salt Lake Temple, right? <laughs> Maybe in the renovation. That's why they're you not going to make me uh, general authorities because I would do crazy stuff like that. Right? <laughs> well, there were also some really great presentations made on other aspects of Latter Day Saint temple worship and ancient scripture or ancient culture. Um, 
David Larson, I think, gave a really, really good paper. Um, well, rather, his larger paper, that, as I went through it, because I was chairing his session, I got his paper beforehand. So I got to kind of review it a little bit. And his presentation was kind of a little bit different, but his paper was really robust, I thought, in comparing like the text of Psalm 89 with the Masoretic text, which is what we have in our current Bible, with um, some variants found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and what that means. But what one thing I thought was really interesting is his exploration of texts from Qumran. So the Qumran community are those who lived around the Dead Sea, uh, who produced what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this community basically rejected kind of the Pharisaic and other sectarian movements of ancient Judaism and thought that that was kind of a corruption. And so they sequestered themselves, created their own community with what they thought was the true worship of, of God in Judaism. And they have left behind some texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls that give little hints, little allusions, um, little suggestions that might imply that they had some, that they practiced some temple-like rituals in their community that they believed represented the true Israelite temple worship that no longer was practiced in um, the current Jerusalem temple at the time. And so he gave examples from various scrolls, various texts, where there are just some allusions to um, more secret, sacred practices um, that involved initiating into their community. And he um, argued that far from being an innovation of Qumran, that uh, he believes that this did stem from perhaps an earlier version of Israelite temple worship, because you also get hints of it in Zechariah and in Jeremiah a little bit. So I thought it was really interesting, and I think there's a lot more ground there to be explored for Latter-day Saints to probe what first or second, third century BC worship looked like in the Israelite temple and uh, what the Dead Sea Scrolls can tell us about that. So I thought that was really cool that there may be some interesting temple themes in the Dead Sea Scroll community that maybe wasn't present in uh, the Jerusalem temple at the time, but maybe was in an earlier period of the Jerusalem temple. At at the risk again of of, uh, uh, sort of shameless self-promotion, I've written a few things uh, along similar lines that uh, David Larson has. So... um, (coughs) Excuse me, I've got this bad cough I'm fighting. Um, uh, actually, uh, with the Book of Moses, for example, I've tapped into some of this Dead Sea Scrolls material to compare it with Moses 1, which I and others have read as an ascension text, as a sort of temple text. Um, because, yes, like this idea of like especially deification, like ritual entry into God's presence of being deified in the mm-hmm. Holy Presence, right? Uh, that's, that's a theme in the Book of Moses, and that's a theme in these Qumran texts. So... Uh, lots of stuff there for Latter Day Saints uh, that will, they'll find of interest. Uh, uh, so I can give my my second uh, endorsement to what David Larson said there. That was very good stuff. Uh, Jeffrey Bradshaw and Matt Bowen they talked about Jacob's temple journey to Haran and back. They kind of just did a very broad mapping of the Jacob story in Genesis, which takes up you know a big chunk of the book of Genesis and talking about how that entire cycle kind of maps out this overarching covenant journey, if you will, 
um, that may parallel or mirror some of our temple themes of ascending into the presence of God, making covenants with him. This idea that um, Jacob step-by-step kind of meets with God, learns some things, grows a little bit more, meets with God again, and eventually comes through this process where he has an endowment-like experience where he's given a new name, he's given new power, he's given a new covenant, he's promised these blessings for his himself and his posterity, and it all comes through the process of uh, going to Bethel, then going to Haran, then coming back to uh, Peniel, then going back to Bethel, and all these different places he goes on can seem overwhelming, all these locations, but they map out this very beautiful journey of someone. It's kind of like a hero's journey, you know, everyone grow, uh, starts their journey with this call to adventure, and you stumble along the way, but eventually you return home new and evolved and improved, and that's kind of what Jacob does, but with temple themes overlaid on top of it, which is pretty cool. So I thought that one was pretty fun. Um, Matthew Bowen gave a presentation with on wordplay. Unsurprisingly, that's really his yeah. bread and butter, doing onomastics and Hebrew wordplays. And so he specifically talked about Jared and the motif of divine ascensus and descensus in the book of Moses. Basically, the word Jared... In Hebrew, well, it comes from the word yared, which means to descend. And so he explores how in the book of Moses, they kind of play on that word a little bit because Jared is the father of Enoch, I think. Yeah. And so um, the spirit of the Lord descends upon Enoch. And he kind of shows how that, like a little word play there and how this divine descending also plays in Enoch ascending into God's presence, having this endowment-like theophonic experience. and So that's pretty interesting. A lot of times those arguments go over my head because the linguistics <laughs> so, get a little in the weeds for me. So, so if, you can, if you can beg my pardon for a moment, the Spirit of God descended on the descendant of the man whose name means descent. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well done. <laughs> there, there's lots of fun uh, onomastic wordplay in the Book of Moses. Something else as I've been going through the Pearl Great Price that I'm also noticing some of it's biblical, right? right. So, like the name of Cain, uh, and Matt Bowen has mentioned this too. So, you know, Cain, uh, Cain, his name sounds like the verb kana to purchase or to get or to acquire. And so, in the Bible, in, in Genesis, Genesis four, Eve says, "I have gotten a man from the Lord." Right, uh, mm-hmm. and that's playing off. That's riffing off the name. But what Matt Bowen and others have pointed out is that in the Book of Moses, which expands on Genesis four in Moses five. When Cain kills his brother Abel, uh, well, first of all, he enters into a covenant with Satan, right? Like a satanic pact. Specifically what? That I may murder and get gain. Right. And then when he murders his brother, he says, see, I have gotten the flocks of my brothers, right? Like So like so Matt Bonus talks about how there's some, uh, there's some plan words there. Um, the name Master Mahan, I think, is related to this idea. Uh, and so with, with Enoch too, yeah, it's great. Uh, you see the same kind of sophistication in the book of Moses and Joseph Smith's inspired revisions to Genesis and expansions on Genesis. You see that as well as in the biblical text itself. So this is your lesson for why you want to learn Hebrew kids is because you can find these really interesting and in some cases really quite profound connections and and subtle uh, artistic elements that go into the story that really bring out and heighten the elements there. 
One thing that I wanted to ask Matt that I didn't get a chance to, because even though I was in charge of the Q&A, we were very behind, and so I tried to restrain myself and not ask too many (laughs) questions, but I was curious if um, he had done any thought, thinking on the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon, if there's a Mm. similar play going on there with divine ascensus or descensus. I mean, the brother of Jared certainly ascends to a mountaintop, but I've never really taken time to look at the Book of Mormon text to see if there's any, like, descending or going down wordplay there. Don't they go down into the barges at one point? Oh, that's true. go down into the... uh, Well, I know Nephi goes down into the ship. Maybe... uh, they might go down th- into the barges, I've just too. been reading Ether recently, and I think yeah. that's there. I'd have to double-check, but I think this says, and we went down into the barges, which the Lord had prepared or whatever, right? And they definitely talk about, like, going into the depths of the sea. This yeah, that part's like, awesome. Harrowing yeah. into the, the depths of going back hell. Going back into the, yeah. Orange. Back in the waters, waters of chaos, yeah. exactly. They even say, and yeah. there were great beasts and great whales, like uh, the, yeah. the, the chaos monsters of the primordial deep. Like, oh yeah, all those elements are there of them descending down into the underworld or into chaos to reemerge, newly recreated in the land of promise. Yeah, right? that one's a real good hero's journey because, yeah, you yeah. literally do go through that descent through hell or through the waters of chaos to emerge triumphant because of God. <laughs> so that's that's interesting. I'll have to look into that, I guess. I'm actually, uh, I'd never thought about it before, but in Ether 1, instead of getting a genealogy like you would normally expect, where it starts from the beginning and goes, it reverses the order, right? It starts with Ether and it goes back. And that's almost a sort of like descent, if you will, back in yeah. time. Uh, this kind of reversal here. And it even uses. Um, the language it uses the language of descendant. Now I don't know if in a Semitic language or whatever those would have a those would be cognates the way they are in English, but uh, I don't know. Just kind of thinking out loud here. Right. Well, if I may, just going back to David Larson's presentation really quick because he didn't he only briefly touched on this in his actual presentation, but most of his paper was on Psalm eighty nine and comparing the variants in the Dead Sea Scroll and. He seemed to argue that in Psalm 89, the Qumran community had made some deliberate adaptations to the scripture um, that reflected their belief about David being this eschatological, royal, messianic type of figure and what that meant for their rituals. But um, one thing I know that like Matt Brown has argued is that Psalm 89 may be an allusion to like a coronation ritual that perhaps ancient Israelites or the king of ancient Israel would have performed in the temple perhaps. I mean, there are verses in Psalm 89 like, uh, David, whom I have anointed, with whom my hand has been established or grasped. And so those little hints there, um, some have taken to be as like ritual clues that maybe there was some sort of ceremony within the temple where the king was coronated, anointed, had some sort of um, you know, grasping of the hand into the holy divine presence of God um, as a way to initiate or coronate him as king. And so I guess I was wondering, I, I want to ask David one of these days if he thinks that, what he thinks of that idea and if he thinks that plays at all into what the Qumran community is doing with Psalm 89 or if they are on a totally different brainwave. Um, but I always liked Psalm 89 for that. I think it's kind of cool. Anyway, um, I know 
Neil, you really liked David Colabro's presentation, yeah. and I, I did too, though I would admit it was getting towards the end of the day, and my kind of attention span was starting to wane a little bit by that point. I was getting a little hungry, but <laughs> David Colabro is always worth listening to because he is just so, like, he's such a devout believer of the Restoration, but he's also very careful and meticulous in his research, and so I really appreciate all that he has to offer. Uh, yes, and obviously the implication of what Jasmine said is that nobody else at the conference was very careful, and they're all, just, uh, <laughs> Stephen included, just these uh, sloppy <laughs> hack apologists or whatever. No, just kidding. Obviously. Uh, but yes, I I did enjoy David Calabros, and I feel like it, he's doing something that uh, that's needed to be done for kind of a long time, but isn't always, uh, that nobody else has really taken the time to do. Um, in that he's really working hard to kind of parse the layers that that are there mm-hmm. in restoration scripture, and you know he he really he he really he he firmly he's operating from a paradigm where restoration scripture is ancient and has you know with the Book of Mormon at least is historical, um, and he's not. Um, but but he recognizes that there is a complex kind of history behind the texts, and uh, this is something that has been going on in biblical scholarship, right, for a very long time, is right. trying to parse out different sorts of strands and threads and things like that, and there's a lot to critique about the way it's been done in biblical studies, uh, but there's no denying that there is complexity there, and, you know, he's making the point that we probably have similar complexity standing behind the texts that were revealed through Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moses, and the Book of Abraham. And a couple of years ago, he did a, he, he was working on, um, or he did a paper for the, the Moses conference that Interpreter did mm-hmm. on the Book of Moses as being set, ultimately, the final version of the text, at least, being from the early Christian period and <coughs> representing uh, a ritual drama of sorts that would have been performed as part of a baptism uh, ritual by some early Christians or something like that, and uh, he built on that with his presentation here by trying to use the Book of Moses combined with the hints we have about the brass plates version of Genesis in the Book of Mormon, combined with, of course, what we have in Genesis itself, to try and tease out a pre-exilic form of Genesis that could have stood behind both of these restoration sources and what may have been there and what the ritual drama context may have been for that. And I thought that was a very interesting mm-hmm. exercise. I mean, obviously, there's, there's, it, it requires some speculation. But like I said, I really appreciate the, um, the recognition of, of this complex historical development behind Restoration texts and this willingness to engage in that kind of complexity without necessarily you know throwing throwing the antiquity out the door, right, and recognizing that uh, that we can have both. It, we can have it both ways, if you will. Um, and so I, I thought that was really fascinating. And his, his, his hypothesis that based on some of the details in like Alma 13 and things like that, that this was uh, this early form of Genesis that we can reconstruct through these texts may have been used in like the anointing of priests as, as part of a ritual for the anointing of priests and things like that. I thought it was a very fascinating, uh, you know, conjecture, at least. The, the coolest part of that paper is when he back-translated uh, 
the proto Genesis one one, and he had um, some Paleo Hebrew script above it, and it was sort of based on like how. So Joseph Smith in in Nauvoo in uh, April of eighteen forty four, King Follett discourse, right? He makes a big deal about Genesis one one, and he gives this like reconstructed version of Genesis one one that grammatically doesn't really work if you take the Masoretic text of Genesis one one at face value, right? Yeah, and so David Calvo just like, went ahead and like, well, if 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 there was an earlier version of Genesis one one, then it would read like this. And he just kind of <laughs> that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I, I dig that sort of thing uh, as as someone that uh, works with Semitic languages. I was like, hey, yeah, that that's pretty great, right? Now we want a whole the whole King Follett discourse in uh, in Paleo Hebrew Paleo Hebrew <laughs> script. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that'd be quite an undertaking. Uh, Stephen Ricks, that session, talked about temples beyond <coughs> Jerusalem, and uh, he, he kind of brought together a bunch of different things that have been talked about before, but it was nice to kind of have it in all, all in one place about just worship outside of Jerusalem, because you definitely get the sense from uh, like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and some other places that authorized worship was only in Jerusalem. And if you were not worshiping at the Jerusalem temple, you were an apostate heretic. Um, but the story is a little different when you look at maybe other passages of the Bible that maybe indicate that the picture is not so clear cut. And then with archaeology, archaeology has revealed over the last several decades that there seemed to have been Israelite centers of worship that weren't in Jerusalem and that looked oddly similar to the layout of the Jerusalem temple as far as having uh, this tripartite structure with a holy of holies sort of area or a holiest area and altars. And so we know there is, uh, we've excavated a temple-like site in uh, Arad, and then we have texts from Elephantine, Egypt, talking about the construction of the temple as well. And so he he brought in some of those examples to show that Nephi, for example, in the Book of Mormon, building a temple outside of Jerusalem may not have been considered as apostate, as maybe some would assume. Well, and the importance of the uh, Elephant. Elephantine Temple is not only is that outside of Jerusalem, but it's completely outside of Israel. Oh yeah, even, right. And yeah, uh, you know when, when there were you, two, by the way, in Egypt. Right, the, the, the one too. in Leontopolis. Um, when you first start, when when we first start talking about things like the Temple at Arad, or more recently there was the one discovered at uh, Moza. Um, I think I said that right. Moza. Yeah, Tel Moza. Tel Moza. Yeah. Um, the immediate response you might get from a from maybe a, a biblical evangelical or something like that might be something to the effect of well but they're still in the land of Israel right no one would no good self-respecting Jew though would build a temple outside of Israel well no we we know they did we know they did like demonstrably so uh, and so you know what Nephi's doing and and the the Elephantine temple is also interesting because it's likely a, a community of, of people with some ties to the northern Israelite kingdom. Uh, and they were likely established in the uh, around the 7th or 6th century B.C. Uh, and so if, if this is starting to sound like a familiar story to you, uh, that's what's kind of interesting about it, is their, their background is very similar to the, the, the background of the Book of Mormon peoples. And they go out and they do basically the same thing. They... They flee the land of Israel. They establish their own temple, um, and so on. So, yeah, I think it was William Deaver that called this idea 
So this is true. In, in the Deuteronomistic history, so uh, Book of Deuteronomy says you should just have one temple at Jerusalem. You shouldn't have any high places. You shouldn't have any shrines, right? Uh, William Deaver basically says, yeah, archaeologically speaking, we just know this didn't happen. <laughs> like, I think he calls it a minority report. Uh, he calls the Bible a minority report. This is, at best, it's like an idealized kind of thing that they wanted to have happen. Yeah. At worst, it was just like sort of outright propaganda, ignoring the reality of what Israelites were actually doing. So, I mean, if you if you want to make the if you want to make the biblical infallibility argument or whatever, fine, I guess you can. But you're just ignoring the reality of how ancient Israelites worshipped God. And uh, and even ancient interpreters of the Bible didn't necessarily even take it that way. Dead Sea Scrolls didn't seem guys didn't seem to take it that way. So it's a much more complicated question than just saying, "Well, the Bible says only one temple in Jerusalem, and that's it." Um, the thing I liked most about Stephen Ricks' article about this is he points out that Joseph Smith, in his day, was criticized for this. Uh, contemporaries who only had the Bible and Josephus, but basically they only had the Bible. They criticized Joseph Smith for this, for crying out loud. This was a weird, radical idea. Uh, uh, Alexander Campbell criticized him for it. Plenty of people criticized him for doing this, right? A temple and a priest outside of Jerusalem? Well, yeah, Mr. Campbell, (laughs) sorry. Like, them's the breaks. We can demonstrate this now pretty clearly. Yeah, I mean, not to say it would have been impossible for worship to have happened the way that the Bible describes, but just from like a practical standpoint, an ancient Israelite living in northern Galilee, traveling to Jerusalem for all of those pilgrimage festivals, like I feel like just in practical terms would have just incentivized people to build closer shrines to them without the conveniences of modern travel and things well, like that. Well, and just, I mean, think about it this way. We have the conveniences of modern travel, and do we try to just have one temple and insist everyone's got to come, like, to Salt Lake City for their temple rites and things like that? No. In fact, President Nelson is, like, going berserk over getting temples into... I, I shouldn't put it that way. That's maybe a little flippant, but he he's very <coughs> adamant about we need to get temples into places where they are accessible to our members and where where we can make sure everyone is getting access to the temple blessings. And uh, that's with the, the most amazing modern conveniences for, for travel and technology that have ever existed. So, yeah, in, in antiquity, the, the realisticness of having just a single central temple, is it just wasn't realistic. Uh, but it looks like we're, go- we're headed into break. This has been The Interpreter Show, and we will be... Right back. Now, the Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to The Interpreter Show. Once again, I'm Neil Rapley. I'm joined here in studio by Jasmine Rapley and Stephen Smoot. And we have uh, Hales Swift joining us by phone. Uh, we've been, we spent pretty much the whole first hour discussing the Interpreter uh, Temple on Mount Zion conference yesterday. Uh, if you missed out on that, as Jasmine mentioned, you can go to YouTube, uh, Interpreter's YouTube channel, and... You can watch the live stream sessions uh, on there, and I think they'll be they'll be 
breaking that out so that you can just watch specific presentations later. But now uh, it is time for us to begin uh, the Come Follow Me portion of our show tonight. And uh, uh, this week we'll be talking about the book of Malachi. This is the last Come Follow Me for the Old Testament um, wow! The very last. I guess it makes sense. It's yeah. the end of the, I don't know why I was so shocked at that. You, I was like, "Yeah, it's the end of the old, the Christian Old Testament." I guess that makes sense. Yeah, you were probably thinking of you know if it if this were the Hebrew Bible, it's the end. Yeah, of the that's book what, of the I think 12, the Hebrew ordering. Still, it, yeah, there's still there's several still books to go. But, <laughs> but no, this is Malachi. This is the end of the Christian Old Testament, and so this is our last "Come Follow Me" uh, Old Testament uh, lesson uh, that we'll be doing. Um, Next week, obviously, they'll begin with the New Testament uh, to give you some advanced material for, you know, getting started with that. Uh, but today, like I said, we've got Malachi, a nice short book that uh, that comes at the end of the Old Testament there. And I believe, Stephen, you have uh, our introduction and uh, we'll get us started with some insights into chapter one. Right. So Malachi... Or Malachi, if you're reading it in Hebrew, which means, of course, my messenger, the very first verse, an oracle or the burden of the Lord. I'm going to be switching between NRSV and KJV, hashtag sorry, not sorry, but uh, just to help make things work. Uh, it's a masa, an oracle, a pronouncement, KJV, a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, the very first question you have to ask yourself as you're reading it is, is Malachi the name of a dude, or is it just meaning my messenger? Because in Hebrew, grammatically, it can be either. You can have it be either just the word of the Lord by my messenger or the word of the Lord by Malachi. And uh, people debate back and forth. Is it an actual prophet named Malachi? Is it, is it just a name? Is it, is it a title for another prophet? Um, some, some Jewish exegetes say it might be Ezra, and we'll get into why. So anyways, that's the first thing you've got to figure out is, is who's this Malachi guy? Well, the text doesn't give us any, like, real information about him. I'll just assume that he a, is a guy. That's just kind of my default assumption. He's an actual prophet. Uh, um, so if he is, which we'll assume, there's no information about him, right? You don't get his genealogy, who his dad was, where he's coming from, anything like that. So uh, so we, we're in the dark there. You also don't get a dating to the book. So some of the other prophetic books, you get, like, in the during the reign of King so-and-so, right? Uh, and they'll end up... We don't get that in here. So we have to piece together contextually... Um, when is Malachi writing or prophesying? When is the historical setting of this book? And biblical scholars have landed pretty consistently on the Persian period. So we're talking end of the 6th century, early 5th century, right? Um, I, I like to put it sometime between maybe uh, you know 515 BC to like 485 BC, right? Um, the reason for that being is, and this is again a, a pretty standard argument scholars have made, Malachi seems to assume that the temple has been rebuilt, but that Ezra is not yet really on the scene. Um, and so uh, there's some interesting, like, where do we stick him in the Persian period? Um, and I think that kind of might, that might work. And that can be confusing because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament yeah. for most Latter-day Saints. Right. But, and so we can yeah. think it's like, oh, it's chronologically at the end. Jokes. But yeah, but but chronologically it's not. That's the other problem. So uh, where do you where do you stick this in the Old Testament? So so the Jewish uh, tradition puts it at the end of the prophets, the twelve prophets, right? Um, but the twelve prophets, uh, but that doesn't run chronologically because um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles and Daniel all come after chronologically than uh, 
Um, well, I guess not necessarily Daniel. Compositionally, Daniel comes after, but chronologically, certainly Ezra and Nehemiah Chronicles is supposed to come after um, uh, Malachi. So it's it, so it's weird where you put it. So again, questions about the the chronology, questions about the context, questions about who this guy is. Uh, for the purposes for our discussion, I just sort of accept the consensus of most biblical scholars. We're probably talking early Persian period. We're probably talking sometime between when the temple has been rebuilt, but before Ezra becomes the prominent fi- figure in the community. Um, be- well, we'll see in chapter one, Malachi seems to assume that temple sacrifices are happening again, but that they're doing it in a bad way. That's kind of the point of chapter one, right? So, so that lends some context. There's also Persian words that appear in Malachi. So, so the form of Hebrew has lots of like uh, Akkadian and Persian loan words in it. So that also gives, like, even just in chapter one, um, if you go down to verse, uh, let me see where it is here. He mentions like the- you get it from the slang, as it were. Well, he mentions um, the governor. Um, I had the verse here. Anyways, he says, you know, go and ask your governor something about this. Well, that's an Akkadian word, loan word, a pecha. Uh, 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 that's an Akkadian loan word that's used to describe a Persian satrap, right? So uh, things like that. Okay, sure. Oh, here it is. It's in verse 8 of the KJV. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? And again, the Hebrew is pecha. So anyways, Linguistically, pretty good. It's in Persian period. Thematically, it seems to be Persian period. Now, for us Latter-day Saints, here's what's interesting. Jesus shows up in the land of Bountiful in 3rd Nephi, and he brings the Nephite disciples together, and he has, says, "Bring, give me your books. He opens the books, and he says, hey, you've left some stuff out here. You left out Samuel stuff, right? And he also says, you also don't have this guy Malachi. I'm going to quote him for you. And then Jesus proceeds to quote excerpts from Malachi. So um, even the Book of Mormon seems to acknowledge that Malachi was not known among the Nephites until Jesus shows up. Now, that gets complicated by the fact that there are allusions or perhaps quotations or paraphrases of a few verses of Malachi in the small plates in First and Second Nephi. Uh, we can debate why that might be there, maybe the translation. Um, I actually think maybe, maybe he's quoting Zenus. Who knows? Um, but point being, even Jesus seems to say, hey, you guys didn't have Malachi. So Malachi, even from a Book of Mormon perspective, seems to be a post-exilic prophet. Um, and so that's another thing that sort of puts us in the historical context here. Finally, the other reason why Latter-day Saints care about Malachi, of course. So besides Jesus quotes him to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, he quotes chapters 3 and 4. Um, Moroni also quotes Malachi to Joseph Smith when Moroni appears to Joseph Smith in September of 1823, except the punchline is Joseph Smith remembers with, with with variation from how it reads in our present Bibles, and he goes to quote Malachi and do sort of like a sort of a midrash on Malachi almost by quoting it in a way he doesn't quote the King James version. He quotes it. He says, you know, uh, I will restore. What does he say? I will seal or I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Uh, and then he invokes the priesthood involved that etc cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Go, go read Judgment History. I don't have it up on me in front of me, but we all know the verse, right? So. So we like Malachi because of this idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. Moroni sort of does a midrash on that with Joseph Smith, or perhaps he's quoting another another version of the text that was floating out there that links us with priesthood and sealing power. Um, and then Joseph Smith goes back to it in Nauvoo in DNC section 128. <coughs> Excuse me. DNC 128, he quotes Malachi again. Um, again, linking it with, with priesthood ordinances and temple ordinances. Okay, so... That's pretty Latter-day good with the context, Saints right? also like it because of the tithing verse. Tithing, of course, tithing. Well, and that goes into this idea 
that Malachi seems to be operating with the idea that the temple is back and you need to pay tithes and offerings to God's temple, right? So how are we going to do this if there's no temple? Okay, so so that's a bit of the context. So if we go to verse, so the first couple of verses, it's, you know, the oracle of Malachi, uh, uh, the word of the Lord by Malachi. Uh, starting in verse 2, we have this famous uh, phrase that the Lord loves Jacob and hates Esau. Uh, so he evokes the, the language of the brothers Jacob and Esau, the story from Genesis, right? He uses this as an image for uh, the Lord uh, honoring his covenant with Jacob. Verse 6 is where things start to go off the rails because uh, from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, Malachi says, hey, you guys are offering sacrifices wrong like you're doing it the wrong way so for example um in verse seven uh let me make sure yeah so verse seven ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar and ye say wherein have we polluted these so they're they're giving uh less than stellar uh the cereal offerings the grain offerings right uh for uh for the temple offering um and then in verse eight uh, and if you offer the blind sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Uh, remember what Deuteronomy says, you're not supposed to give sick, blind, maimed animals. You're supposed to give the good, healthy ones. So we, we clearly see here, uh, God is not pleased with the fact that they are offering, we'll say, subpar offerings to the temple. And why are they doing that? Uh, are they economically not able to, you know, because they are under, this is Persian Yehud now, right? They are sort of a backwater of the Persian Empire. So are things like economically not going great? That was the whole point of Zerubbabel's temple, right? It, it was run down and kind of shabby. And so Herod the Great had to come along and refurbish it a couple centuries later. Maybe that's it. Or we can say um, the people of Israel were like deliberately being neglectful of their offerings. I think that's probably what's happening here. Uh, because later he's going to say, you've robbed God by not paying your tithing, right? Uh, not giving a tenth. So that seems to be kind of the, the, one of the big frames here. Malachi is going to pronounce oracles against Israel because they are not properly attending to the temple ordinances. From our Latter-day Saint perspective, this is obviously a, a good prophetic warning about what happens when we neglect our temple uh, responsibilities, what happens when we allow our temple attendance to become slack, or when we uh, backslide on our covenants that we've made, uh, when we withhold a bit, when we, co- we, we covenant for the law of consecration, right? So what happens when we withhold a part of that from the Lord? Same sort of principle here um, that, that I see happening um, in Malachi uh, chapter 1. Again, verse 12, you have profaned it. You say the table of the Lord is polluted, the fruit thereof, even his meat, it is contemptible. You say also, behold, what weariness is it? Uh, so again, the people have this attitude of, oh, so what? It's not a big deal, right? But Malachi clearly is not going to have that. Uh, I'll, I'll end here on verse 14 and then hand it over. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So the punchline here being, if you know that you can be offering more and better things to God, you should be doing it. And when you withhold that, it causes problems. And you're going to get prophetic denouncement, uh, which happens anciently and which happens today. I feel like this is a great chapter about, you know, the offerings we give to the Lord. And we get this reminder several times throughout Malachi about whether it be the quantity of your temple attendance or the quality of your temple attendance. 
um, but also just the quality of every offering we give to the Lord. We believe that our callings are part of the law of consecration, that our fast offerings are part of the law of consecration, the way that we treat our ward members and neighbors. And so all of that is great opportunity for us to reflect upon if we are giving the Lord a blind or maimed or lame offering instead of giving him the best offering that we have. Um, One question I had is at the beginning, it does have this really interesting allusion back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And it says, uh, well, the Lord claims that he loves Israel. And then the Israelites respond, wherein hast thou loved us? Like bewildered, like how on earth have you loved us? Because we went into exile. But the Lord responds, was was not Esau Jacob's brother, say the Lord? And I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. And uh, I ended up making uh, Jacob the inheritor of kind of the Israelite blessings. And, and I think that probably can rub people the wrong way. Like, yeah. does the Lord hate people? Does God hate any of his children? Like, what's the context for this? So the context is love, ahava, and hate, uh, nasa, are covenant terms so this is weird for us to think about but like uh they use very emotive language to describe uh and familial language to describe covenants people enter into or treaties right so uh neil knows this because he's written on the amarna letters uh but neil tell us what do you call somebody who's a superior in a covenant versus when they're when they are a a co-equal or they're collateral with you uh, well, I don't know if I could remember off the top of my head. It's, but it's, I mean, they're familial terms, right? So uh, like, oh, like, right, right. So yeah, you have you'll call them father, yes. right, or brother, or if, brother they're if they're co-equals. Yeah. And, and yeah, in the Amarna letters, the uh, the kind of subordinate regents, the vassal kings of the of the Canaanite region, will refer to their fellow vassal kings when they're riding to Pharaoh. They'll refer to him as my brother. Yes, and they'll use very emotive, over the top emotional language to describe uh, how, how things are going in the relationship, right? So the Bible does this. So when you see these words of I, the Lord, love so-and-so or hate so-and-so, um, it's, it, it rubs us oh, kind of wrong today because we, well, God doesn't hate people. God loves all of his children, and that's true. This is a, this is a linguistic context. This is a, we, call, we would call it a register. It's a linguistic register that uh, doesn't jive with us because we don't know the context. But that's, that's what it's getting at. It's getting at using covenant terms. So uh, God loved his son Esau just like he loved Jacob. He loves all of his children. But when prophets use this language to describe the covenant relationship God has with people, they're going to use this language that may be unfamiliar to us. Perfect. Speaking of covenants, chapter two is all about. Could could I actually? I just wanted to mention. Yep. Um, we see a similar thing actually happening in uh, Helaman fifteen, when Samuel the Lamanite, mind you, says that God has hated the Lamanites uh, and loved the Nephites or something to that effect. Um, but he's talking. He's ultimately talking about how, despite the fact that God has hated them, he's prolonged their days so that they can eventually. Uh, enter into the covenant with him that they'll repent and, and come to him but uh that can again it can feel very jarring and strong but it's this covenantal context mm-hmm. that he's talking about sorry now uh, go ahead and continue. not a problem speaking of covenants chapter two is really rich with that sort of stuff because it's all about the priestly class of israelites the levites specifically in verse one Um, Malachi, or the Lord, whoever is speaking here, is addressing the priests. Verse 1 says, And now, O ye priests, this commandment, 
is for you. This is a continuation of what we were talking about in chapter one about how the sacrifices weren't quite up to par. People weren't quite giving all they could to the Lord. And now the Lord is calling out the priests for not performing their officiation duties in the best way they could. Um, it talks about in verse two, if you will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, said the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because ye do not lay it to heart. And this again, like what we were talking about in chapter one, sounds pretty harsh. Um, the Lord's talking about hating and now he's talking about cursing. But we have to remember that this is all coming in the context of a covenant. I mean, in verse 4, it even explicitly says, Ye know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. So between those verses, you get the sense that the Lord has made a special covenant with the Levites. He, The priests are set aside as special servants of the Lord, and yet because they have fallen short of those responsibilities, the Lord is cursing them. Now, when we talk about cursings, what we're really talking about here are the covenant curses. Way back in... Let's see, where would it have been? It was in like in the last chapters of Leviticus and the last chapters of Deuteronomy is where the Lord sets out the the covenant with Israel. And part of that comes with blessings and cursings. I mean, covenants in the ancient world followed a pretty formulaic and predictable pattern. There was always, when God made a covenant with Israel, or when anyone made a covenant with anyone, uh, whether it be like a land treaty or a marriage covenant or any sort of political alliance, they often included a historical prologue, an introduction of sorts, a preamble where you're introducing the parties. You're going to list the terms and the conditions of the covenant, and then you're going to follow it up with blessings and cursings. The positive and negative consequences for obeying and disobeying the covenant respectively. And so when the Lord is talking about the cursings, he's specifically talking about the enumerated cursings that were laid out in the law of Moses. Um, At the very, so the whole book of Deuteronomy is really a renewal of the covenant where Moses has brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he's, uh, they're in the wilderness and before they enter the promised land, they renew the covenant. And so all of Deuteronomy is like a rehearsal of what all of the terms of the covenant are. And then at the very end of Deuteronomy, the Lord gives instructions for constructing altars on Mount Ebal and Gerizim, where on one of the mountains, they're going to shout blessings. And on the other mountain, they're going to shout cursings. And this is all part of the formulaic way to solidify the covenant that with this sacred promise comes sacred obligations and sacred consequences if we do not fulfill our end of the bargain. And so those are the specific things that the Lord is referring to when he says, I'm going to uh, curse you. And verse three, it talks about how I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts and one shall take you away with it. So that's pretty morbid and disgusting. But it's the idea that they have corrupted themselves and they're bringing upon themselves this destruction and chaos. Um, In verse 5, the Lord almost laments that my covenant was with him of life 
and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. And this is referring to the priest that when the Lord set apart these priests, he, the covenant he made with them was that they were to be set apart, that they were to be full of instruction and knowledge. This is really drawing a lot on like the wisdom tradition that ancient Israelites um, believed that there was such virtue and righteousness to be found in wisdom. And we think of wisdom today as just having like very good experiential knowledge that comes from age um, and experiencing life. But, and they thought about that too, but true wisdom was following God's way. It talks about in verse seven, that the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So here we have kind of a definition of that wisdom that he should seek the law of the Lord. And again, we've kind of got a wordplay here with the book of Malachi. It says that he, the priest, is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And as Stephen mentioned, Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger or my angel. And so the the idea is that these priests are a separated class because they are God's messengers. They kind of represent God as officiators in the temple. Therefore, they need to keep the law, be examples of wisdom, and be the messenger of the Lord. Now, when it comes to how this applies to us, I think Latter-day Saints should take these admonitions to heart for all of us, because while in ancient Israel, the class of priests was limited to a lineage, the tribe of Levi. Latter-day Saints believe that in becoming part of the covenant, um, in participating in temple ordinances, all of us become part of this priesthood. As Stephen was talking about in the first hour, priesthood isn't just this idea of like patriarchal abstract power that's given by the laying on of hands. Well, that's part of it. It's a hood of priests, like a brotherhood or yeah. sisterhood. Or a neighborhood. Or a neighborhood, <laughs> yeah. a priesthood. Latter-day Saints believe that participating in the temple means participating in a priesthood. A hood or fraternities, grouping, gathering, community of priests. And that includes men and women. And so all of us should consider ourselves a class that is reserved by God and that God expects more of us. We're part of this very sacred covenant. And so we need to take those promises that we make very seriously so that we can be, as verse 7 says, the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Um, Presidents and church leaders have talked about being an ensign to the world. And we really, um, that is how we see ourselves in some ways. And that requires being better um, than we otherwise would be being kinder, being more giving, more charitable, more Christ-like in all that we do, and being defenders of righteousness in all that we do as well. Um, so the second half of chapter two kind of continues in the same way, but it goes more into the dialogue. So we've already seen a lot in chapter one, and chapter two also goes has this pattern where there's a lot of question and answers going back and forth between the people of Israel and the Lord. Um, uh, Well, in chapter one, it's 
The Lord says, I have loved you. And the people respond, what? How? Wherewith have you loved us? And then the Lord responds. Well, in chapter 2, we have that same format going on where you've got that dialogue back and forth. Um, The first piece of dialogue, well, you've, you've kind of got this shift where the Lord finishes speaking about the curse and the covenant of the priests in chapter 9. Um, where he concludes in chapter 9, I also have made you contemptible and base before all people according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And then the people kind of respond, uh, kind of through Malachi. It's kind of hard to detect who like the narrator is in a given point. But it says in verse 10, Have we not all one father? Hath not God, one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So this is kind of an acknowledgement that you're right. We have not necessarily been behaving in the way that we should. And Malachi, or the author, expounds further that Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, because Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And this introduces another theme that kind of pervades through the rest of this chapter and elsewhere through Malachi of the metaphor of marriage and idolatry. There, those Marriage is often used as a metaphor for idolatry, and here again you've got this idea that You've married the daughter of a strange god, or you've gone after a woman who worships another god, and to be a metaphor for how Israel has gone after other gods. This is like the primary metaphor in the book of Hosea, and also in Isaiah and Jeremiah, they use this metaphor a lot, and Malachi also really leans into this idea that not only has Israel not been worshiping God, but it's a betrayal as deep as the violation of a marriage covenant, a marriage contract. And because marriages are formed in terms of covenants and contracts, it's a very apt metaphor to describe the relationship Israel is supposed to have with the Lord, that they're not just in a friend agreement, they are in a contract, a covenant to be loyal to one another. And so when you break that trust, it is as jarring and as visceral as the betrayal of an unfaithful spouse. And so the Lord continues, um, well, Malachi continues talking about what the Lord will do and why we need to return unto the Lord. And verse 14 kind of, uh, again, has the question-answer dialogue. Yet, oh, so in verse 13, I should actually back up, it talks about how... um, The people are going to cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping. There's going to be so much anguish. And you say, wherefore or why? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion, the wife of thy covenant. Um, This verse is a little confusing, but basically it's talking about how the Lord is a witness between the marriage of Israel and his wife, which is also kind of the Lord in this metaphor. But the idea being that because the Lord was the witness to this marriage contract or this marriage covenant, um, he is also a witness to your treachery, and so he knows um, all the evil that you've done. And uh, that's kind of uh, summarizes how the rest of the chapter goes. Um, 
it finally ends off in verse 16 to 17. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. And when it says uh, the Lord hateth putting away, what he's really saying is he hates divorce. And that's kind of a metaphor for saying he hates breaking covenants. He hates breaking contracts because the Lord is faithful. Um, what's that scripture in D&C when... Uh, when DNC eighty two ten when yeah. I'm bound when you do what I say, but, but when, when you, you do, do not, not what I, I say, say, you have no promise. Right, the idea that we are the ones who are often treacherous and often the ones breaking covenants, but the Lord, He's bound and He is inviolable when infallible when it comes to His covenants, and so um, that's why He hates divorce. He hates covenant breaking. Well, is the metaphor really here? Um, he, he hates it when we break our covenants because He. He fulfills them, and he's always faithful to them. And if you can, I mean, look, a- anyone who's ever been in a, a, a relationship or, or anything where the other person is always breaking their promises, breaking their commitments, and you have, like, really invested a lot into the relationship mm-hmm. and, and kept your promises and, and kept your end of the deal, it's frustrating, right? It gets, it gets very, very frustrating, and you can imagine from God's perspective – uh, throughout the whole history of Israel and, and really, you know, even the church today, right, he's having to work with these imperfect people who keep breaking their covenants. And he's like, look, I uphold my covenant. I uphold my end of the deal. And you guys don't. And he hates it. <laughs> and so the message for us is to be covenant keepers, to not break our covenants. And of course, that's not to say that we are out of the reach of mercy when we do fall short of our covenants. God is merciful and he always lets us repent, but it should impress upon us the seriousness of those covenants that we shouldn't make them like lightly with the intent to just repent. We should make them intending to keep them and intending to be faithful to God as God is faithful to us just as a spouse would be. So that's basically the gist of Malachi chapter two and Malachi chapter three kind of continues in that vein from what I understand. And there's more kind of question and answer sort of format there. Neil, do you have any insights into chapter three? A few, yes. Uh, I may not uh, take nearly as much time as as, uh, Jasmine and Stephen did, so hopefully Hales has a lot to say. (laughs) Well, chapter four four is the one where Latter-day Saints tend to have a lot to say. We're going with the juice. Even though four is very short, I feel like that's the real bread and butter uh, of Malachi for the restoration and things like that. But... We do get with chapter three. We're we're to the part where Jesus quotes mm-hmm. that Jesus quotes the Nephites. So already from a Latter Day Saint perspective, uh, there's a little clue here that hey, perk up, pay attention. The Lord thinks this is pretty important to know. Um, and going back to Stephen's discussion at the beginning about the name of Malachi, what we actually get here in this very first verse of Malachi three is, "Behold, I will send." my messenger, right? And that's the meaning of Malachi. And uh, so there's kind of a little bit of a play there. Um, And he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And so if you've maybe felt like we've been talking about temples and covenants a lot, and you're feeling maybe a little burned out from that, I have bad news (laughs) 
Malachi is going to keep hammering Take on this. Take it up with Malachi if yeah. you have a problem with it. Yeah, really, because um, he's just going to keep going. And that the temple and covenants are so important to the context here. Um, really, this whole chapter, though, verse 2 kind of sets up what this is about. He says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Um, and that question there, um, hang on a second. That's kind of, uh, like I said, I feel like that's what the, the chapter is kind of based on. And we read it, you know, when Malachi gave it, the Christ hadn't come for the first time. But certainly when Christ gives it to the Nephites, he's giving it a kind of a second coming uh, application here, and that's how we tend to read this as well, is when it talks about the day of the Lord and things like that, um, uh, the day of his coming, that's what it's alluding to, is this the second coming, who may abide his, the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth. And um, the first, the, that for several verses, it kind of goes over uh, kind of people who won't make it if you will uh you have you have sorcerers and adulterers and false swearers and those who oppress the hireling for in his wages um those that oppress the widow and the orphans and turn aside the stranger that's all in uh verse five um those who have gone away uh from mine ordinances and have not kept them in verse seven uh those who have robbed god in tithes and offerings which is what we quote and talk about a lot i feel like um, and then uh, verse 13, those who spoke against God, these are all the people who will not abide his coming, right? And that uses this, um, the end of verse 2 there, it talks about he is like a refiner's fire, he's like fuller's soap. And this is, um, a refiner's fire, of course, is making an allusion to a metallurgical process that people in the ancient world probably would have been much more familiar with. And verse 3, it continues on with that metaphor. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, uh, that they may uh, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And we didn't talk about this when we gave our recap of the Temple of Mount Zion conference, but one of the presenters did talk about... Uh, Margaret Barker. Yeah, Margaret Barker talked about the idea that that the high priests or the the priests and the Levites were actually metal workers and that metallurgy was actually had kind of this ritual element to it. And this is something that's actually been done by some other scholars as well. Last year I did a bunch of reading on this actually uh, for for a research project I was doing. Uh, one scholar, this Israeli scholar named Nesim Amzalig, has actually, he wrote a paper arguing uh, that that Yahweh, the earliest worshippers of Yahweh were metallurgists, and he was kind of viewed as a god of metallurgy in particular. And there's a bunch of symbolism that he talks about. But for this context, with this silver, refiner's silver and refiner's fire, I actually thought that um, there's a paper by one Jeremy Smoke, or Smock, I don't know how to say his name, S-M-O-A-K, um... He's an expert on the Ketephenome omelets that are made of silver. And he, you he mean has. amulets? <laughs> omelets? Oh, yes. Omelets. No, uh, well, Maybe can you tell it's though. a fast <laughs> Sunday? Yeah, it's, it's, well, we had, we had breakfast dinner uh, tonight, so, you know, omelets <laughs> are on my mind here. 
Um, amulets, yeah, he, <laughs> he he's he's an expert on the Katefinom amulets, which are these little silver scrolls. Um, and he has a paper that came out last year um, titled "You Have Refined Us Like Silver: Yahweh's Metallurgical Powers in Ancient Judah." And he argues that there are several passages that actually portray the Lord as being a metal worker who works specifically in silver and gold, and that when these amulets were made out of silver, it wasn't just some kind of, you know, it just wasn't just a wealthy elite being like, look at how rich I am, I put my scriptures on silver. Silver was, like, ritually and theologically important to them as uh, as it pertains to Yahweh's powers. And... Um, this is obviously one passage. He didn't actually cite this passage in the paper, which kind of surprised me, but he cites a passage in Jeremiah 6 and uh, <coughs> I think uh, Zechariah 13 and then, of course, Numbers 6 because that's uh, what, what's actually on the amulets. But um, there is this idea, the, the point simply being that here we have the Lord is going to... When the Lord appears, this metallurgical power that he has is, is what Malachi is playing into when he talks about he's going to be like a refiner's fire. And he's going to, the refining fire is going to purify uh, the people, right? And all of those wicked people that I talked about, uh, that, that get talked about in these other verses, right? The adulterers and uh, false swearers and so forth, the covenant breakers and all of these people, those are not the people who are going to abide that purifying, that refining process. Um, and so you finally get to the answer here uh, when you get to um, verse uh, 18, the very, like you get to the end of the chapter um, and then it talks about those who will discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And this is kind of your culmination, and it's kind of like this is your answer. That's who's going to be able to abide the Lord's coming. And so that's who we need to strive to be, is to be able to discern between righteousness and wickedness um, and between him that serveth God and him who isn't serving God. Um, and so I think that really kind of sums up the essence of chapter 3, of Malachi 3, and uh, unless anyone wants has anything really important they want to say about the tithing passage, which I think maybe you know I didn't give a lot of time to, I think we can. I would just like to point out uh, it's framed as a rhetorical question: Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, where have we robbed thee? Uh, this is a, a common repeating uh, technique that Malachi uses. So we see it yeah. again and again. So go read in your study. Go read all the other rhetorical questions that Malachi raises and the response that – like the, the rhetorical response that he gives because each time that's kind of uh, – it's – I don't want to say a straw man, but he's, he's sort of creating he's, – he's putting in, in, the, in our mouths what we shouldn't be saying, right? Like he's kind of giving us the answer, the, the wrong answer. Uh, uh, as it were, right? Yeah. So uh, that we, we like to proof text the tithing uh, 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 passage, but there are several others throughout Malachi um, where he does the same sort of strategy, which I find very interesting. All right. If we're ready, I'll move on to chapter four. Is uh, there anything else anyone wants to say on three? No, do that? go right ahead. All right. Chapter four is where the action is. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, 
that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Or in other words, neither ancestry nor posterity. The parts of the tree from which the tree comes and the parts that protrude from it. Uh, in this day, all those who have put their trust in worldliness or in the economy of this world must confront the reality of death and beyond even that, uh, confront the reality of the resurrection. Uh, in the resurrection, we learn in Doctrine and Covenants 132, um, it says, And verily I say unto you, uh, speaking of the everlasting covenant, that the conditions of this law are these. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise of him who is anointed, both as well for time and for all eternity, and that too most holy by revelation and commandment through the medium of mine anointed. And there is never but, uh, let's see, and there, uh, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, and I have appointed my servant Joseph. And it goes on for a second. Um, and are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. So, nothing lasts through death and the resurrection unless it is sealed by God's power. Um, it goes on to make this even more clear. And everything that is in the world, whether it be ordained of men by thrones or principalities or powers or things of name, whatsoever they may be that are not by me or by my word, saith the Lord, shall be thrown down and shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection, saith the Lord your God. For whatsoever things remain are by me, and whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. So in the resurrection... And this, this uh, passage in Malachi seems to make it clear. Relationships that are not specifically sanctioned by God's law do not persist, regardless of what names these relationships may have been called by mortal men on earth. So when this day comes, it risks leaving people with neither root nor branch, neither ancestry nor posterity. Continuing on. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, and that's sun is in the, the bright, bright glowing orb rather than uh, offspring, sense of S-O-N, so it's S-U-N, not S-O-N, of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, can be taken care of, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. And here is where it gets interesting. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And here... The Lord next re reveals the solution to the problem presented in verse 1. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day that leaves neither root nor branch, the Lord will f reveal Elijah the prophet, who we will recall had power to seal the heavens shut uh, that it didn't rain, and open them again thereafter. 
And he was also one of the characters brought directly into heaven. In his case, uh, while his successor looked on, he was taken up in the chariot of fire. And was also one of those who restored authority to the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus described this authority as allowing the apostles to seal on earth and in heaven. Um, and it seems that this authority, returning to Elijah's ministry, provides a solution to the problem of a rootless, branchless future that the Lord raised, would, lays out. Um, because he provides the means whereby these relationships can be forged together by God's authority so that they do remain in and after the resurrection of the dead. And that suggests that indeed this sealing power is central to the purposes for which the earth was created. And this is amplified um, in what Moroni taught the prophet Joseph Smith about these verses. So when Moroni visited Joseph Smith and began his instructions to him, that Moroni quoted this passage with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Instead of quoting the first verse as it reads in our books, he quoted it thus, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn in an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall burn in stubble, for they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And again he quoted the fifth verse thus, Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He also quoted the next verse differently. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. And that strengthens it considerably. Not only would the earth be spent with a curse, I mean, presumably there have been a number of curses that have come upon it in various degrees, but this amplifies that to that the whole earth would be utterly wasted, as in would fail to fulfill the measure of its creation if it were not for this binding and sealing authority. And with these, these quotations and these concerns, the Lord is, in essence, laying out the trajectory of the restoration through the Kirtland era. Before there is a Book of Mormon translation published, Moroni is already promising that Elijah will be sent to restore the priesthood keys of sealing, which will pre prevent the earth from being utterly wasted at the coming of the Lord by sealing together the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers so that we would not be with neither root nor branch. Um, and so in, instead, the human family could be bound together with the forging those links that would allow them to be one family. And it, it's, I think, at the very least, an interesting piece of information to account for for those who were supposing that Joseph was just making this up. Because you have these angelic uh, visitations that are 
being promised before there's even a Book of Mormon, which are later provided and witnessed by more than one person that fulfill these purposes that have been laid out from the beginning and, in fact, will uh, interlace with and fulfill promises made in the Book of Mormon and elsewhere. So it, it's, it's interesting watching uh, or looking carefully at these scriptures because in the Book of Mormon and the revelations to the Prophet Joseph Smith, you have the tapestry of the gospel just com coming out full, fully printed <laughs> um, before he'd even read the Book of Mormon yet. And it's really quite a miracle. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, oh, sorry, Jasmine, did you have a comment you were going to make? One of the things I find interesting about Malachi 4 is that it talks about turning the hearts of the fathers to children and children to fathers. And today it's easy to read that as like, oh, family history, because that's mm -hmm. kind of how we have, we've used it for so much. Um, but that that understanding really took a while to develop, that that's what Moroni meant, that's what Malachi meant, or that's what it was referring to. I mean, in the earliest days of the sealing doctrine, we were sealing... Uh, you know, we had polygamy, and so we were sealing multiple wives to different people, trying to create sealing links that way, and we were adopting sons to each other and daughters to each other. We were creating all these different family links, and it really wasn't until Wilfred Woodruff that we started really understanding that, oh, wait, we need to seal our own ancestors together instead of creating these artificial, like, dynasties, kind of, through the sealing ordinance. We need to be sealing our families. We need to go back through the generations so that we can connect the entire human family back to God. And so now Malachi f has renewed meaning for Latter-day Saints, and it's taken time to get to that point, but I think seeing that historical development makes us appreciate it all the more that the sealing ordinance is about so much more and it's so expansive for drawing God's children all together into one covenant one covenant family yeah I, I probably the only other thing to mention um, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure Hales if, if you touched on this I, th I think you may have briefly but uh, just in case you didn't um, this this prophecy of Elijah coming before the you know before the coming of the great judgment day of the Lord uh, this feature is prominent in the New Testament obviously right um, <coughs> excuse me this feature is prominent in the New Testament with John the Baptist right so um, not long after when the prophecy is given well I guess a couple centuries whatever you know what's <laughs> what's a couple centuries between friends but within the new, but, but within the within uh, even within the Second Temple Jewish tradition we can say. Uh, there was already an expectation of Elijah returning in some significant eschatological way, and many view that as John the Baptist, right, in, in the New Testament. Yeah, and in fact, one of the things that actually kind of struck me a couple years ago when I was, I studied this a little bit, is, um, so we think of Elijah returning, and we think of Kirtland Temple, we think of 1836, and that is, of course... That's when Elijah himself comes and bestows the keys specifically prophesied in this passage. But who, who comes first to restore the priesthood? John the John Baptist. John the Baptist, who is yeah. 
who is understood as this Elijah figure or Elias, as it gets rendered in, in, in Greek, the, in yeah. the gr- from from yeah from the Greek. Uh, this Elias figure in the New Testament. And then who comes after that to restore the next level of priesthood? Peter, James, James, and John, who are are on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Elijah is actually the one who bestows priesthood key, you know, in the restoration comes the sealing power of, uh, and you know, Elijah and Moses are there providing the priesthood and sealing power and so forth. Um, And so Elijah really is, or the concept of Elijah at least, (laughs) is really at the core of every level of priesthood restoration, from the Aaronic to the Melchizedek mm-hmm. to the temple sealing power that gets restored in Kirtland in 1836. Yep. Let's see. Now, there's one other point I want to make, which is, if you look at the end of their chapter in the King James Bible, it says, the end of the prophets. <laughs> <laughs> but you should realize... But that does not mean the end of the prophets. It means the end of the section yes. of the scriptures called the prophets, which is called the prophets. <laughs> there are, if, if, if any, if there's any doubt, there's there are prophets mentioned in the New Testament, and if you can't notice all of the, the prophecies just flying around in the thing, uh, well, good luck. <laughs> anyway. Yes, yes. Do not, do not mistake that uh, for meaning that the, there are never yeah. to be prophets again. <laughs>